So welcome to ANC. My name is Jason. I'm one of several pastors around here. And uh, we're in Acts 7 and 8 uh, today. We're barely going to barely touch 8. Trey said something last week that made me think and made me a little bit sad because nobody likes to rush anything. He said we, we were in Matthew for 22 years, which I, I did the math. I think, I think my kids were born in a different era. And then we're blowing through Acts. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but we're just charging through Acts. I felt really sad about that. So I thought, well, let's go back and recover some of the stuff in chapter 7 because we wouldn't want to be faulted for rushing anything, would we? So for the record, uh, unlike Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, which is the lengthiest, wordiest sermon in the early church, I'm not going to be lengthy or wordy. And if you know us, you know that some of us are shooting for you know, brevity as the soul of wit and not hovering around and just kind of landing on the point because some of us, I'm just telling you who's guilty of it, can like take this thing for 45 minutes. And that usually results in a Tuesday morning conversation. I don't want to have any more of those Tuesday morning conversations. <laughs> and what, so what Trey does is he'll just cut half of my points out of the podcast and say, well, I made it 22 minutes. Yeah, well, you left out. The, anyway, so, so we're looking to not hover but land. So this is the story about, about Stephen is really interesting content. He doesn't occupy a lot of the pages of the New Testament. In fact, it kind of moves quickly, but it's really, really fun content. Stephen was one of those chosen. Do you remember the controversy when some of the widows were not being attended to, and so the leaders got together and said, we need to subcontract? Stephen was a subcontractor. He was in charge of hospitality, apparently, and preaching one of the most amazing sermons, and then paying for it with his life. So, you know, just a side job. You know, he moonlighted as a, you know, apostle, apparently. But but, so I'm not going to go super deep into it, but there's a, there's a couple of points that I've been hovering around all week just trying to get my head around. The parallels, and Trey pointed this out, the parallels between Stephen and Jesus are, are very striking, right? He stands condemned of something that's way beyond what he actually could be accused of, but he stands condemned because of the way he told a story and he pays for it with his life. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like Jesus, not too many chapters before, Right? Even some of the parallels, even between how he says, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is like directly tying the story of Stephen to Jesus. It's fascinating stuff. Basically, what got Stephen and Jesus in trouble was not that they invented new categories or new narratives. It's the way they spun the story of the history of Israel. Okay, now hang with me because you got, you got to catch some of the details here to follow what's going on. They weren't creating new subject matter. They were speaking about all the things they were supposed to be speaking about. But the way they spun it got them sideways, okay? Two things in particular, the law and the temple, okay? When I'm talking about the law, what I mean is the rules of engagement that made people insiders or outsiders, the law, thousands of years of history, and Jesus tells the sequence of the history of Israel in a way that runs a little cavalier over the contemporary understanding of how that was supposed to work specifically related to who was in, who was out. And the temple, of course, and what got Jesus really, really in hot water was when he said, knock it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Of course, referring to what? His resurrection. But you don't, you don't make direct connections between the temple and your body. That isn't, those are two things that do not connect, right? And this is what got Stephen and Jesus in trouble. By the temple, of course, we're talking about what it must take to house the presence of God. What do we have to do to be able to say he's in here? He's right here. We can find him because we know he's here. And if you've been with us for a while, you know how the gospel is just going to mess all that stuff up and it gets them in trouble. You don't get to tinker with who's in and who's out 
right, the law, or where God hangs out and where he doesn't, where he can't, where he will not, you don't get to tinker with those things and not pay a price for it, as the life of Stephen and Jesus uh, boldly tell us. See, it's this bold claim in Jesus that everyone is included and the whole world is God's tabernacle, including his physical body that was just far, far too afield, far too out there for them to, to accept. You get it? Jesus is coming and he's building layer on layer and he's basically saying, you see it? All of it? I can move in all of it. I can use all of it. And this is actually sacred. This is sacred in a way that was unacceptable at the time. And it got him killed. Stephen walks the same gauntlet and he pays for it with his life. There's a progression to God's revelation about himself. And I want us to begin to see this. This is the big idea if you're trying to keep track. There's a progression. There's movement. There's sequence. There's chronology to how God reveals himself. There's a sequence to his unfolding, to his becoming father, to his showing us who he is and how he works and what he wants from us. There's a progression. There's a sequence. Did you know, now this could be controversial, it was never God's idea to live in a temple or a tabernacle, I mean a, 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 a temple or a, a building. It was never God's idea to dwell in brick and mortar. If you read chapter 7 for homework like Trey suggested that we do last week after reading, skimming the sermon of, of, of Stephen, you would know that the tabernacle of the covenant or the tent in the wilderness, right, around which the people of Israel gathered as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land, those 40 years in the Exodus coming out journey, you would, you would know that there's a temple or there was a tabernacle that was part of that. And that's one thing, right? And then another thing is the temple that Solomon built. Out of curiosity, what's the difference? You guys can remember your trivia? What was the difference? Were those two the same thing or were they different? Different. different. How so? fascinating. Why do you always got a shortcut? Because <laughs> he's a leer. He knows, he knows the storyline. Absolutely. You got your finger right on it. I guess you're going to help me make this short today, right? One of these, the tabernacle in the wilderness, was built exactly to God's specifications, and temple, the temple of Solomon was actually not God's idea. A couple of differences come to mind. One was God's idea. The other was David's idea. David begged God, let me build you a temple. I can do it right. I can make it amazing. God says, nah. Solomon ends up building it, but God's like, ugh, ugh, I don't live in stuff like that. One of them was God's idea, one was David. One was portable, one was stationary, right? You have to get here, you've got to come to this place. There's exclusivity, there's walls, there's inside and there's outside. One was embarrassingly simple, and one was designed to impress. I'm reminded of a couple times in the Old Testament where it seems that God has talked into plan B, talked into something that he has reservations about. Do you remember the first case? God, we need a king. Like every other nation, we need a king. And God says, you don't want to do that. The moment you set up a king, he's going to start charging taxes. Isn't that such an American way to read the Bible? The first, yeah, taxes, it's about taxes. No, it's about, it's about your collective imagination is going to be captured in this man, and that's not the nation I'm leading. I am your king. And Israel says, no, no. And Saul anoints who? I mean, Samuel anoints who? Saul, who eventually becomes an absolute disaster, doing 80 miles an hour on bald tires in the rain. It fell apart. He was trying to kill David. It was an embarrassment. It wasn't his idea. That's the first thing that I thought of in the Old Testament where God seems to be, all right, talked into this. The second one is a little bit like that, and it's Solomon's temple. Ornate beyond imagination, designed to impress the world, and it runs so counter to what God wanted to do in the earth. All right, enough intro. Let's read the text. Open your Bibles in Acts 7. 
or following the screen. I'm just going to read a few passages here. Now, this is, these are direct lifts from, this, from the, the, the Sermon of Stephen. He says in verse 44, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Verse 45, After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Verse 48, now listen to this. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And this, of course, is Stephen quoting Isaiah. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Wouldn't it be rotten to be a Jewish male and know that you got to circumcise your heart and your ears too? My God, you came through circumcision and now, no, that's when I would have gone, ah. So the stoning happens right after you say that, right? I'm sorry, women, for young ladies in the room, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. You are just like your ancestors, Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there, even, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, capital R, capital O. Everyone knows who he's talking to here, talking about. And now you have betrayed and murdered even him. You, have, you who have received the law that was given to the angels, but you did not obey it. Do you see the buried question here? Who can possibly house God? Who can possibly tabernacle the presence of God Almighty? The entire order of existence, in other words, everything knowable, everything perceivable, everything that exists is the place where he resides. Not in a nation, a particular way of doing religious devotion, a building, a temple, or any of it. He will violate all of those boundaries. And this is what Stephen is accentuating. This is what he's preaching. Now, he's telling their story, but he's telling it in a nuanced way that costs him his life. To the religious preservationists of Jesus' day, this was scandalous. And Stephen dies as a result. They literally rush at him and they crush him with stones. And I don't know what kills you first, the blunt trauma of the rock hitting you or the pile of rocks on you not allowing your lungs to exhale. Either way, it was a brutal death. Let's look at this closely. What interests me is the progression, okay? Jen's been talking about this for at least 19 years in, in my recollection. Maybe it was last year. I don't remember. For as long as I can remember, Jen's been saying that Jesus comes to the insider, to the outsider, and to the outcast, right? Remember those three categories? They're kind of so in the way we talk now that I don't remember when it even started. But I guess if I'm honest, and I have to be honest, my least favorite category is the insider. But not just the insider. Watch this. The insider to the very last thing God did. Those are the ones I struggle with the most. What does that mean? Those who are judgmental because it's not the way it used to be. Because we don't do it the way we used to do it. Those who stewarded a magnificent move of God at one point not too long ago, but are now all sideways and cross-armed at the new thing God's doing, right? Those are the ones, those are the insiders that make me go crazy. I know I'm the only one. But we would be making a huge mistake, guys, if we read the New Testament and look at the religious elite of Jesus' day and say, that's them, we're over here, we're the new, we're the new thing, right? We, we nev- we're never going to get stuck, we're never going to get entrenched. We would be making an enormous mistake if we look at it. Those guys were cutting edge in their time. 
listen to me clearly, those same people who say off with his head, pile the stones on top, hang him from a Roman cross were the same ones that not too long before were the cutting edge voice of God among what God was doing. There's a, there's a, there's a warning buried deep here, okay? The insider to the previous thing God did, those are the hardest ones for me to love. So easy to loathe the Pharisees of Jesus' time, and what a mistake we would make if we can't figure out how in us, buried deep inside, is the same desire to drive a stake deep into the glacier and say it moves no more. Not on my watch, it's not gonna move. We got the real thing, baby. This thing is not moving. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 is a retelling of the history that these guys knew very well. Nothing controversial, it's their history. Nobody can tell it like a family member. But he's telling it in a way that offends because he's making a connection here. Watch this progression. He's going from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple of Solomon to the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And those are three things that cannot be connected in their mind. He emphasizes the progression and he ends up in the physical material world in a way that they knew the mother and father of this man of Nazareth. They maybe knew the furniture that he built. They knew the guys he traveled with. They knew the people that he partied with. And they said, you cannot connect how God exists in the world in the wilderness, in the the tabernacle, to the temple, that you cannot make that connection. It is an unacceptable connection. But everyone knows, including the Pharisees, that that God cannot be housed, limited, restricted, sheltered, or contained. Everyone knew that. But for a season, now watch this, God agreed to travel in the tent, didn't he? He agreed to be found in the law in these places. He agreed to be found in Solomon's temple. And he was deeply and historically incredibly findable or locatable in the man, Jesus Christ. But now we're bridging into another world where Christ is gone and we're moving into this next unacceptable conclusion, which is God can inhabit all of us in this way. And I'm fascinated by this progression. Here's a principle you can bank on. Whatever's cutting edge and revolutionary today will soon be looked at as the great obstacle to the next thing God is doing. Whatever we love so dear and feels so new, roll it over, look on the belly. It's got a skunk date. It's got a drink-by date. It's got an expiration date. Kids are like, what's a skunk date? Never mind. A horrible American beer commercial. Still don't even understand. It all tastes like skunk. Anyway, I'm talking about American beer, of course. You can edit that, Trey. I'll give you those seconds back. <laughs> so I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we grip and we hold and we don't let go of things, don't we? I've been paying attention to this for a long time. Uh, The innovative, cutting-edge gospel being preached when I was a kid coming of age had everything to do with thinking how you thought about the world, had everything to do with the sinner's prayer, this very new and dubious invention that will not stand the test of time, trust me, in the long view of history, had everything to do to walking into the middle of the chaos, chaos of people's lives and interrupting them with some sentence like, hey, would you like to accept Jesus? Because we're here to, you know, offer you salvation. The cutting-edge gospel that I grew up with, I began to reject very, very early on. I'm like, I can't. This is, this is dehumanizing. This doesn't make sense. I don't know your name. I don't know where you live, and I'm trying to tell you the most intimate thing someone can tell someone. The gospel, when I came up in the 80s and the 90s, was very different. And listen, it had no bodily implications. It had nothing to do with this. This was evil. It was all about this. 
right? It was all about getting the head straight, all about working this out. It had everything to do with preaching the Bible and offering to lead people in sinners' prayers, which, of course, is a very new idea, as I'm saying. But it had nothing to do with touching the whole person. Well, not long after, you know, my heyday as a young guy, there's, things begin to change. There's a new progression. And the new thing is to understand how it is that even creation is figured into the redemption of what God is doing in the world, Right? That wouldn't, you couldn't even conceive of that in the, in the late 80s, the early 90s. We know how ridiculous it sounds now to just simply preach the word and offer no clean water, no food, no, no relief from suffering. It's ridiculous. We wouldn't even go there. But there was a time. Now remember, there was a time. Now we know cooking out downtown for the homeless, painting rooms and walls and serving the broken of our society is the gospel. No sermon needed. We know that now, but we didn't know that always. We're a little church trying to do the work of the kingdom in South Austin. We're doing the best we can do, right? We love our distinctives. We hold them very, very dear. It's what brings us together. We love the, way, the ways that ANC is not like any other church we've ever led or been part of. We all love that. It's in our conversation. It's what we talk about. It's what we hang out and, and discuss together. But listen to me. Our shtick is aging too. What? You bet. Like it or not, it's got a drink-by date. I know this might rub some of you wrong, but we don't get the luxury of saying, this is the final rendition of church that ever needs to be painted. Put down the brush, drop the mic, it's all done. It's all been said. Rob Bell said this 20 years ago. Nobody gets to paint the final Velvet Elvis. Nobody gets to have that luxury. Why? He will never stop being painted by those who can paint. Why? Because you don't get the right to say, this is all that is said, dun dun, curtain closed. If you know anything about God at all, you know that there is a progression in his revelation and we can cherish what he says today, but we have to hold it with an open fist because he'll do something tomorrow that will require us to cash it in in order to be part of that next thing. I'm serious. This concerns me as a pastor. You're thinking about boating? This is what I'm thinking about. I didn't even really want to take the boat out. I don't know how to drive a boat and it's disappointing to my children. Dad, you can do everything. I can't drive a boat. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get it off the thing. <laughs> I was so stressed out about the little thing. I know there's one switch, but it's just, uh, uh, oh, it's beyond my, can't do it. And then there's kids on the lake, and then they're trying to water ski. I'm like, I'm going to kill somebody. I can't, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So anyway, I don't know what we're talking about that. But this concerns me. This is, a, this is an ongoing wheel, you know? If, you're, if your mind is like a watch, there's one wheel that's constant. This is one that's constantly moving for me. I hold things too tightly. I know you guys don't. It's probably just me, but I hold them too tightly. I would give my entire life to see this thing through. I love this thing that much. I moved my family here to be part of this thing, and so did many of you. But I would not be a very good leader if I led you to believe that this was the ultimate, the only, the final way to do church in contemporary society. We're sailing with a stiff wind at our back, and if you're a sailor, you know what that, that's good news. We enjoy what God is doing among us, and we're pushing downhill for the most part, but it's not going to be that way always. The momentum is here, and we enjoy it, but the kingdom of God will go where it will, and it's our job to join it. This thing that we're doing will lead to something different, something new eventually, something that will require us to loosen our grip on this way in order to position ourselves for the new way. It's just how God is. I don't know why he requires that of us, but he does, and it never stops. As I meditated on this passage this week, I thought of three people in the New Testament that stand out to me as these, these guys bridge. I'm sorry, they're all men. 
Don't know why. They're not white, but they're all men. It's a little something. As I mentioned, it's this transition that obsesses me, right? I think of Simeon. You remember the sweet, sweet story of Simeon? He receives a promise that his hands will hold the promised one, and he's, his days are extended until in his arms he gets to hold the baby, Jesus, the maker of all that is, and he recognizes it. And being a man deeply rooted in a previous generation, he bridged over and held that new thing. How can it be that God has skin on? And Simeon sealed it with a promise because God gave him the promise that he would see it. I think of Nicodemus. You know the story, John 3, leader of leaders, Pharisee of Pharisees, teacher among teachers. He goes to Jesus at night, such, such a brave soul, so courageous. He goes in the cover of night, right? And he says, hey, how can you like be born again? Like, I don't get it. Help me understand it. And somehow, somehow Nicodemus transitions, right? And in John 19, we know that of the two people who anointed Jesus's physical body for burial between the peril of the cross and a resurrection Sunday was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He fully transitioned into someone who in public, he gave 75 pounds of whatever, I don't know why the Bible says that, 75 pounds of perfume, whatever that means, to anoint the body of Jesus. He bridged, he transitioned well, he crossed over. And then finally, I think of Paul, and this will take us back to Acts 8. We forget that Paul was a deeply and profoundly transitional character, right? He played on both teams at different times. Most of the rest of the New Testament is either going to be written about him or will be about him in some way after Acts chapter 8. And yet there was a time when he was what everyone feared. He was the nemesis of the new community of faith. Listen to this as we close. Acts 7, final words of the Sermon of Stephen. Listen for Paul here, okay? 757, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who would later become Paul. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, just like Jesus. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And chapter eight opens with this disturbing, haunting little verse. And Saul approved of their killing him. We sometimes forget that Paul was a transitional figure, one who could see one thing, be about it, see the next thing, let that go, and join the new thing. And this is the archetype of discipleship. This is the kind of people we need to be. One who could build his life in one revelation of God, but hold it loosely enough to release it and rebuild his life in the next thing. What do you believe in so deeply that you would fight for? about how you do faith and how you live out community? What is it about the way we do church and community that you hold so dear that you would never go back? Now listen to this. This is a big thought. Let me suggest to you that going back is not the problem. It's not the challenge. You won't be asked to go back. It's our unwillingness to go forward that shipwrecks us every time and alienates us from the next great thing God wants to do. Do you see that? We're all deeply rooted in the now thing. We say, we're not going back. We're not going back. We're not going to take the band out of church. We're going to keep the drum set. We're doing all this. We're not going to wear suits and ties. We're not going. That's not even the challenge. Nobody's going back. The challenge is, can we release the now thing to position ourselves to open-handedly embrace the next thing? What's it going to be? I don't know what it's going to be for you. I think I have a notion of what it might be for us. 
I'm trying my best to pedal into the wind. I don't know. But I can tell you it's going to require me to let go of what I'm holding on so tightly. What do you need to release? What do you need to be set free from? Oh, I want us to be free more than any other thing. I'd rather us be free than be right. I'd rather us be free than be correct. Yeah, that rubs me wrong. I don't know. But I, I know, but you can be wrong. You can be wrong and be free. You can be correct and be completely isolated and wondering why the world doesn't come to you and ask you where your hope is because they don't see it because you don't have any on your face. I want us to be free, but that freedom is going to be up to our willingness to release our small ways of thinking and reinterpret the fence lines that are designed to make us feel safe. Think about it. Our walls make us feel safe. That's why they're there. And that's why we will knock them down one at a time. Because this is not about safe. This is about releasing and going where the wind blows. What would the kingdom look like if you released your narrow definition of what counts as God's work? What would discipleship look like if you could only define and get beyond thinking of butts and seats studying the Bible, studying the book of Romans? If that's, you know, if that's your concept of discipleship, what could it look like if you could release that, let that go? What would your tribe be if you allowed the progression of God's revelation to include even those who you currently despise based on your preferred telling of our American history? What would it look like? We've done it before. We've done it before. We can do it again. We can let it go and say, God, where will you take us? There is no, there's no return ticket. There's no guarantee. It's going to be a bumpy ride. This person, Paul, eventually becomes the leader, probably the greatest leader the church has ever known. He let go of something he had invested his entire life in. And boy, just let that lead us today. 